Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all out this morning, and I just want to say a special thanks to all of you for being here today. Um, if this is your first time at Good News, my name is Jeff, and I'm the teaching pastor here. I'd like to take a few moments to address some family business, and if you would, please pull out the green insert that's in your packet of information, please. Um, and I'd like you to turn to the side that says GNG's coronavirus response at the top. Um, as I'm sure all of you are aware, our nation and nations around the world are grappling with the coronavirus. I just heard yesterday that someone in Highland County has been tested for it. It has not yet been confirmed that they have it. That won't be known until the middle of this week, um, but somebody has been tested. This past Wednesday, Ohio's governor issued an order that indoor gatherings of over 100 people uh, be canceled for at least the next three weeks, but that order specifically excluded churches. On Friday, the president declared a state of emergency, and then late Friday evening, he issued the following statement. He said, it is my great, great honor to declare Sunday, March 15th, as a national day of prayer. We are a country that throughout our history has looked to God for protection and strength in times like these. No matter where you may be, I encourage you to turn towards prayer as an act of faith. Politics aside, he's right. Throughout our history, we as a country have looked to God for protection and strength. Whether it was at our founding, when our original founding fathers wrote our Declaration of Independence, and they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Whether it was then, or whether it it was in times of war, such as when President Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address, intoned that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. Or at times when our nation turned to God and pulled together in the aftermath of a crisis like 9-11, we have in fact turned to God for protection and strength in times like these. And so in just a few moments, we will pray, pray together as a church family for this situation. For this situation. But first, let me say this. Obviously, this is a very fluid situation. The leadership team met on Tuesday and decided to go forward with today's service. But we continue to monitor this situation very closely. We have postponed the beginning of this evening's in-depth study, pending our meeting with the Emergency Management Agency this Wednesday. Depending on what we learn at that meeting, the leadership team may decide to suspend our services until further notice. If so, we will do our best to produce weekly teaching via streaming. Now, we will communicate our decision regarding our services here by Thursday. Now, in order to do our best to ensure everyone's safety here today, we've taken a number of precautions. 
Those are listed on that insert. Let me go over just a few of them. We are not serving communion today. We have ordered individualized communion packets, but they have not yet arrived. And so for that reason, we will not be serving communion here today. As I indicated to you by Facebook on Friday, as a Christian, you have the power to serve your self-communion and your family or within the context of your small group if you choose to continue meeting. Secondly, we're not providing food service at the cafe, just coffee and bottled water. And all children in our children's program are being required to wash their hands upon entering the children's area today. I also want you to know that high-touch areas like door handles, light switches, clipboards, pens, those were all disinfected last evening. Hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes are on the greeter carts and at the Welcome Center and Cafe. Please feel free to make use of them. I did issue the warning on Friday that the Center for Disease Control has indicated the age group most at risk is 60 and up. And I ask each person in that age group to use your judgment as to whether or not you should attend. Now, if you made the decision to attend, please remember the following. As hard as this may be at a church like Good News Gathering, please refrain from shaking hands and hugging. Okay? <laughs> Some of you may know my wife was in tears uh, between services. And she, <clears throat> she asked me to hug her just because I'm her husband. If we go down together, that's the way it goes, right? <laughs> but if you cough or sneeze... Please cover your mouth. If you use the restroom, and I shouldn't need to say this, wash your hands thoroughly with soap. If you forget and shake hands, just use a hand sanitizer. Now, as far as the pens and clipboards, when you leave today, if you, have, if you took a pen and you don't, you don't take it home with you, please put it in the, one of those boxes on the tables at the back with the big G on them, okay? That way we'll know to disinfect those. The same with your clipboard. Put them in the clipboard carts. That way we'll know those have been used and we can, we can have those sanitized this week. Those are just some of the precautions that we have taken, friends, and we hope that all of you will be safe. One of the things that we thought about this week, though, was how, how can we let our light shine in the midst of this turmoil. And that's why you see the extension trailer out in front of the building. We are collecting canned goods and non-perishable items. Um, the, our friends at um, New Life Ministries that run a major food pantry have indicated that they expect high demand during this time, especially with a lot of kids out of school, and they may not be able to have access to the kind of food that they get at school. So they've asked for help, and we will help them. Because that's who we are, and that's who Christ called us to be. Now, friends, in the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles, God appeared to King Solomon one night. And you have to understand for this story to, to really make an impact on you, you have to understand that Solomon was at the height of his kingly power and glory. He had finished building the temple 
in Jerusalem as well as a palace. Both of these were magnificent structures. His father David had dreamed of building the temple, but God said, no, your son will do that. And his son came through with flying colors. So he had built this temple where God's people came together to worship. Everything in Solomon's kingdom looked like it was going up and to the right. Everything looked good. But God warned Solomon that there would come times of difficulty and distress. Times of national calamity. And God specifically named famines and plagues. And God said this to Solomon. He said, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now think about what he said. He said, if my people, that's, that's us, friends, the people of God through faith in his son, if my people who are called by my name, when you think about it, friends, we are adopted into God's family through his son, Jesus Christ. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if we will submit ourselves to God and pray, if we seek him in prayer and seek his face, in other words, seek his will for our life and for our our country and for the world in which we live and turn from their wicked ways, if we will ask God to search us, to find if there is any way in us and in our country that is outside his will, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Would you do me a favor, friends, and would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we seek God's face this morning? And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to allow you a few moments to pray silently. This is just between you and him. And then I will close us with a prayer for our country and our church family. Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer this morning. We are your people. We are called by your name because we have accepted your Son as our Savior and our Lord. Father, we humble ourselves before you today. You are the creator of all that is. You reign regardless of what is happening around us. 
despite the distress we face and the panic that is so evident in so many around us, we humble ourselves because we know that whatever may come, you are in control. While the rest of the world is in panic mode, we need not be afraid because we know that our hope comes from you, not the world in which we live. Father, we come to you in prayer as a church family and we seek your face. You know what is happening in our nation and in nations across the globe. You are aware that there is a virus impacting so many people and endangering lives. But Father, we know that you are greater than any plague, more powerful than any virus. You are the great physician, the ultimate healer, and we are in your hands. Help us, Father, to turn from any wicked way. Search us and know our hearts that we may grow to become more like your Son. Father, we pray for our leaders as they grapple with how best to deal with this disease. Help us to remember to cover them and all affected by this virus in prayer. Give them wisdom. Give them strength. Give them insight to know how best to lead at this time. Father, we pray that our nation would pull together and look to you for protection and strength. And Father, it is our prayer that that you will hear from heaven, that you will forgive our sin and heal our land. We pray this, Father, not just for our country, but for every country impacted by this. Father, please protect and bless the G&G family. And give our leaders wisdom as we navigate the coming days. May we be a beacon of hope in this community especially in these troubled times. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen. I have a question. See, I've been coming to church for a while now. And I've been reading the Bible some. But there's something that's got me confused. I mean, I, I get the whole God thing. You know, He's the creator of the universe. He's Father of mankind. You know, that whole bit, I get that. And Jesus, he makes a ton of sense to me. He walked, he talked, he made friends, you know, he made enemies. He had real human emotions. Well, there's the, you know, the whole, he's both God and a human thing that I'm not 100% on, but, you know, I feel like I understand Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. That's what's got me confused. My grandma always referred to him as the Holy Ghost, you know, whatever that means. 
Sounds a, a little creepy. But honestly, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? It seems like everywhere I look, I get a different picture. You know, I'm, you know, I'm reading the Bible, and Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. You know, and if I'm reading the first chapter of Acts right, that enabled them to speak other languages. Is that what he does? If so, it must not be for everyone. He hasn't done that for me. And then I'm watching TV the other day. Uh, a TV preacher says he's going to use the Holy Spirit to heal this old guy with a bad hip. And I kid you not. He hit that old dude on the head and knocked him to the ground. I, I don't know if it healed him or not. But you know, I'm not sure I want that to happen to me. Um, Facebook this morning, watching a video. A preacher from my dad's church. And he says... The Holy Spirit will come to live inside of us. You know, how does that work? Is this like a demon possession, but, you know, but it's God instead of the devil? How does God come to live inside of me? Would he even want to? I mean, heaven knows I'm trying, but I'm no saint. Yeah, I've, I've pretty much always believed in God. I, Jesus sounds like someone I would love to hang around. But the Holy Spirit, yeah, I, I just don't get that. Maybe you have questions kind of like this guy. Maybe the whole idea of there being a God makes, makes sense. I mean, the idea that all this stuff just happened. Everything we see around us just kind of came into being without a designer or a creator. It does kind of seem to go beyond the realm of probability. And maybe if that original creation somehow in some way became flawed or, or messed up, and because it's obvious, I mean, if you look around and you read a newspaper, things are flawed and things are messed up. I mean, we've been talking about it, right? Then you can kind of get with the idea that God would send his son into the world to teach us how to live and how to love each other and how to make the world a better place. But the Holy Spirit, where exactly does he fit into the picture? I mean, who is he, first of all? Obviously, he's a major player because Jesus told his followers in some of his famous last words to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that, he got named with the Father and the Son. I mean, think about it. Baptism is a, is a crucial moment in the life of every Christian. It's the moment when believers publicly demonstrate and identify themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus had mentioned him when you do that. In fact, the apostle Peter stated that there's some connection between baptism and this thing that he called the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has to be important 
But what is his role? What's his role? This seems to be where things get kind of fuzzy, depending on which Christians that you talk to. According to some, the Holy Spirit is alive and well and active in the very same way that he was in Bible times, operating in the realm of the miraculous and the prophetic. And some carry this, act, this activity far beyond anything mentioned in Scripture. From the sublime to the really bizarre, like the woman years ago who tried to convince me that the Holy Spirit turned the fillings in her teeth to gold. Or the people you see on TV who claim the Holy Spirit causes them to laugh uncontrollably for significant lengths of time. If you have ever seen it, you would probably think of the word maniacal before holy. According to others, the Holy Spirit's role shifted from, from the prophetic when the Bible came into existence. In fact, in some churches, kind of like the one I grew up in, in part probably as a reaction to some of the bizarre things that have been attributed to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was actually rarely ever talked about in my home church. One thing that all Christians do seem to agree on is this, though. We all believe that in some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. When we accept Christ, the Spirit of of God, the third person of the Trinity, begins to reside in us, which raises the obvious question, how can he live in an imperfect person like me? How is that possible? I mean, let's face it, we're, we're flawed people. We sin, whether it's overt sinful behavior, some action we take that is just wrong or or words that we say that damage or hurt other people or impure thoughts, we're far from perfect. So how does God, the Holy Spirit, live in us? How does that work? Now, friends, our theme word for this year is the word family. And throughout this year, we're looking at our spiritual family. And we started the year by examining God the Father. For those who have placed their faith in his Son, he is our Father. And we learned about his attributes. We learned about his holiness, his absolute moral perfection, his justice, which which is another word for righteousness. In other words, he does what is right in every situation. His wrath. We talked about that, the determined reaction of a holy God against all that is evil. And and we also talked about his love, the compassion for you and I that drove him to send his son into a fallen world. And today, friends, we turn our attention to the Holy Spirit and this idea that he is God in me and God in you. God, the third person of the Trinity residing in me. How's it possible that a holy, just, wrathful, and yet loving God can reside in me? Now our focus verse for this lesson series comes out of the, out of the book of Luke and it's words spoken by, by Jesus. And he says this. Here we go. It's up on the screen. So let's all recite it together. If you then 
though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now think about that. Any one of you that are parents can identify with this verse. Because you know what it is to give a gift to your child. In fact, assuming that you are a healthy and good parent, you find joy in giving gifts to your children. Especially good gifts. You enjoy supporting them. Giving them the gift of a roof over their head. You enjoy this. The, 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 you enjoy being able to support them and, and being able to provide food on the table for them. You enjoy in making their life good in that way. You also enjoy getting them Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and doing special things so that they feel loved and special. And you find true joy in giving them the gift of faith. Something that you can demonstrate, but at some point they have, to, they have to make their own. But a good parent enjoys setting that example for them and putting that before them. And Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, in other words, though we are flawed and sinful people, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will you, Father in heaven, give the Holy Spirit? I mean, Jesus indicates this this is like the best gift you could get. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, God is good for us? Because of his goodness, he gives us the Holy Spirit. It's important that we know about him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to get together. And Father, we grasp at this moment the preciousness of that fact that we can be together. Because Father, you know that it may come where that can't happen as much for a while. And so, Father, help us to take joy in our togetherness today. Joy in singing together. Joy in learning together. Joy in growing together. Joy in being together. Father, help us never to forget that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if this is your first time at Good News Gathering, um, you received an outline on your way into the auditoriums, white sheets with holes punched on the side. And if you're a regular, you're looking at those white sheets, you're looking at your watch, and you're saying, how in the world is he going to get through all that? Okay? Well, we're going to do it because I'm going to sprint. Okay? Now, <laughs> understand that today's lesson is kind of laying a foundation for the following three lessons. Okay, so just kind of keep that in mind. But we're going to roll through this stuff really quick. But what I want to do is I kind of wanted to give you some background of the Holy Spirit and how he appears in Scripture. 
Because it's kind of amazing, especially if you came from the kind of church I came from, just how often he pops up. And a lot of times we just don't, we don't think about him. We don't understand it. This is a major player, okay? But when you think about it, it says in the very second verse of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it says, In beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, circle that phrase, Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So, so you have the Holy Spirit engaged in the creative process at the very beginning of the Bible. And then in Revelation 22, it says, the Spirit, circle those two words, the Spirit and the bride say, come. So here you are in the second verse of the Bible, and in four verses from the end of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is in both those places. The truth of the matter is, guys, the Holy Spirit is present in the Bible from the beginning to the end. He's all over the place. Obviously a very important figure. And then as you roll through the Old Testament, you see him at various points. For example, the Bible tells us the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses. And he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on Moses. Okay, so, so Moses has the power of the Spirit on him. And he takes some of that power and puts it on these 70 other leaders of the Israelite nation. How fascinating. So you, so you have this spiritual power that's on Moses and then it gets spread out to other leaders. The Bible tells us in the book of Judges that the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon before a huge battle that he was about to fight. And he was going to have to lead this army against overwhelming odds. The Bible also tells us that Samuel anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And it says, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Now, interestingly enough, after David experienced a tremendous moral failure, he commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then murders her husband, Uriah. He, he repents and, and begs for forgiveness, but he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, and he says this, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now here is a guy who has just experienced a massive moral failure. And yet he begs God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And then the prophet Isaiah, he says this, Come near me and listen to this. Now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed, circle that word, endowed with the Holy, or with his spirit. In some way, shape, or form, this prophet had the spirit of God endowed upon him. Friends, what we find is that the Old Testament Old Testament leaders, kings, and prophets were endowed with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit came on them. Now, when we, when we jump to the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. In fact, we see the Holy Spirit engaged before Christ is even born. 
Bible tells us when, when, when the angel tells Mary that she's going to have a child, she's like, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One will be born. Will be called the Son of God. So even before Jesus was born, the Holy Spirit was in, intimately involved in his conception. And then when he's eight days old, his parents take him to Jerusalem to present him in the temple. And there's an old man in the temple by the name of Simeon who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the Messiah. And it says, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, the Holy Spirit shows up also at Jesus' baptism. It says that when people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And the heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So there was this visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at that time. And, and there was a voice heard as well. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Bible also tells us that almost immediately after his baptism, it says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and, get this, was led by the Spirit. Circle those words. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So not only was Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit leads him into a direct confrontation with the evil one. Wow. Now it's interesting that early in his ministry, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And on the synagogue, the synagogue there where the, where the Jewish people gathered, he, he goes there on the Sabbath day and he stands up to read and he reads from the prophet Isaiah that we mentioned earlier. And he read this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. He began by saying to them this. <laughs> Interesting. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, the guy that Isaiah was talking about, that the spirit of the Lord is on me, that's me. It's me. You see, the Holy Spirit was present in the birth, the baptism, and the ministry of Jesus. He's there throughout. Not only that, but later we see the Holy Spirit coming upon others. The Bible tells us that when Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and was struck down and blinded, a man named Ananias went to the house 
And he said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Saul, later known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he would go on to write to a church. People just like you and me, a letter. In the Bible, it's called the letter of Ephesians. And he said this. Now, at first, this is going to sound a bit odd to you. But he says this. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And you may be thinking, why do you you make a reference to, to drinking and getting drunk when he's talking about the Spirit of God? It's about control. It's about control. What's controlling your life? He said, are you controlled by something other? Maybe wine, maybe it could be anything else. Or are you controlled by the Spirit? You see, Christians are to be filled with the Spirit. They're to be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? And how does that work? Now, very late in his ministry, Jesus gave some very difficult teaching. This was extremely hard truth that he's putting out there for people. And the Bible indicates that the crowds began to leave him. Okay? This was, this was midway in, into the third year of his ministry. And it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus looks at the 12, and he says, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And you think about this statement that that Peter's making. He said, we believe. We believe that you are the Holy One of God. We believe that you have the words or the teachings or the advice, not only about this life, but about what's coming in the next. You've got that information. And he says, to whom shall we go? He's like, what other rabbi would we want? You've got the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Who else could we want to be around? Which is why this next statement of Jesus had to be utterly shocking to these guys. Because on the night before he died, Jesus said this, But very truly I tell you, and then circle this phrase, because this is astounding. It is for your good. Jesus looks at these 12 guys and Peter as kind of their spokesman who said, to whom shall we go? Who else would we want to be around? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe you're the Holy One of God. And he says, it's for your good that I am going away. You can imagine the the dead silence that had to have been in that room. 
And then Jesus says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I bet these guys were thinking, what could be better than you? It is for your good? What are you kidding? And Jesus went on to say, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be, circle these words, in you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. So the question we want to look at this morning is how can God, the Holy Spirit, live in an imperfect person like me? How can he do that? And the Apostle Paul addresses this very question in this book that he wrote to a church in Rome. We know it in the Bible as the book of Romans. But in in the sixth chapter of Romans, Paul makes this statement. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. Circle the words law and grace, if you don't mind. He says, you're no longer under the law, but under grace. And Paul contrasts this idea of law and grace. And and perhaps the way to think of it is like this. When you think of law, you you think of the Ten Commandments, okay? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. It's a list of rules. Okay? Do's and don'ts. And the truth of the matter, and this is what the Old Testament reminds us of over and over and over, is when it comes to lists of rules, do this, don't do that. How many good deeds can you perform? Have you done enough? It never works never works. Because if you break one law, you're done. But Paul says we're not under the law, but under grace. In other words, it's no longer about what do I do or what, you know, what, what, have I done enough good stuff? Have I done more good stuff than bad stuff? It's about what Christ has done. Because when he died on the cross, our sins were taken care of. It's no longer about what I do. It's about God's grace for me. But the Apostle Paul was realistic. And he doesn't pull any punches because he's honest in Romans Because even after he says, you are not under the law, but under grace, he talks about how difficult it is to live as a Christian. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. He says, he says I'm, 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 you know, I've accepted Christ, but, but I still mess up. 
And then he says, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul contrasts these two things. And we're going to show you a, a, a diagram that may, may kind of help you make sense of this, okay? Before we accept Christ, we have what the Bible refers to as an old nature, okay? A nature that lives under the law of sin, which leads to death, okay? But when we accept Christ... We take on a new nature, the law of this, it's, and this is what Paul refers to as the law of the spirit, which leads to life. Now, you notice how those, how those circles kind of overlap, and you got me there in the center of it, because, because for all of us, we have that same struggle that the apostle Paul had. That sometimes we do good, and then sometimes we don't do so good. How many of us have have gone, oh, why did I say that? Or why did I do that? Why did I hurt that person? Why did I watch that? Now, the truth of the matter is, friends, the longer the Holy Spirit resides in us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord, then hopefully over time, the Spirit becomes more a part of who we are. And we live more under the law of the Spirit, which leads to life. And we take on more and more of that new nature. And the old nature is gradually squeezed out. Now, friends, that doesn't happen completely. Unfortunately, we will not be sinless until we are in heaven. But over time, if we allow ourselves to be filled with the Spirit and we operate in the Spirit so that we hear those whispers in our ear, those nudges on our shoulder, be careful here, and we heed them, or we read in God's Word and it tells us to do something and we do, the more the Spirit begins to operate and gain strength in us. But friends, the truth of the matter is, in Christ, the Holy Spirit frees me from the law of sin and death. When I accept Christ as my Savior and my Lord, the Holy Spirit frees me from the law of sin and death. That's why the Apostle Paul followed up that statement, you know, <laughs> what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of the subject to death? He begins by saying this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, you think about it, 
all the Old Testament law could really do is say, this is what you should do, this is what you should not do. It did not have the power to make us good. But Christ took away the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross. It says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, we could never live up to the commands of the law. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So Christ offered himself for your sins and mine. And for that reason, when we accept him, there is no condemnation. We are freed from the law of sin and death. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now friends, what does it mean to live according to the Spirit? How do we do that? I'm going to just hit three things real quick this morning and then we'll We'll flesh this out in greater detail in the coming weeks. But how do we live according to the Spirit, first of all, accept Christ and a sacrifice for my sins? Accept what He has done for you. Accept the fact that God loved you so much that He sent His Son into the world to die on a cross for your sins and to take the penalty for every wrong you have or ever will commit. That's what he did. The second thing is this. Stay focused on Christ. Stay focused on Christ. Now this may seem a little odd to you. You may be wondering, okay, where's Jeff going with this? Okay, let me give you an analogy that maybe can help a little bit, okay? I'm going to give you a baseball analogy. The batter's goal, if you are up to bat, okay, your goal is to get to first base, right? I mean, that's the goal. You want to get to first base. But to do that, you cannot focus on first base, can you? Because the ball ain't coming from first base. The ball's coming from the pitcher's mound. And if you want to get to first base, you better keep your eye on that ball because you've got to hit it to get to first base, right? So you focus all your attention on that ball coming toward the plate as it's pitched. And friends, when we focus all of our attention on Jesus Christ and we stay focused on him, then we're going to get to the first base of better behavior. We're going to get to the first base of treating people better. Not because we're trying to get to first base, but because we're focused on Jesus and what he's done for us. And the Holy Spirit operates in us to grow us into Christ-likeness. Now the third thing is this. Rest assured in the hope that we have. 
rest assured in the hope that we have. I think, I think a lot of times we Christians limp along through the Christian life because we forget this verse in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? We forget. And part of the problem with forgetting that is we always feel like we can never quite live up, that we're never quite good enough. And the truth is we've never been able to live up and we will never be good enough. But Jesus took care of that and now there's no condemnation because we are in him. Now as the spirit lives in us like those circles I showed you, we will over time if we stay focused on Jesus become more and more like him. Now, friends, this morning, I don't know what your next step needs to be. Perhaps you've never actually confessed Christ as your Savior. And maybe what you need to do now is just discover what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that describes you, friends, just check that box on your Connect card and we'll arrange a time to sit down and talk with you. Perhaps you've already decided that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you've never been baptized. We have a baptism scheduled for April the 5th, which is Palm Sunday. And if you would like to know more about that or if you'd like to participate in that, just check that box on your Connect card and we'll get a hold of you. That third question in that box says this. How good am I at staying focused on Christ when I face temptation or when I face trials? Where does your mind go? Where do your thoughts go when you face temptation or you face difficult times like we're in now? Does it go to Christ? Or does it go elsewhere? Friends, you will never be able to find stability, calm, and assurance if your focus is not on Him. Never forget where our hope really lies. It's not in this world. It's in Him who created this world. And friends, lastly, this week, I would encourage all of you to pray about this coronavirus thing. Pray for our leaders. Pray for all those affected by it. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this time that we can get together. We're grateful for the privilege that this is. 
Father, it's at times, at a time like this, when you realize just what a precious gift that is to be able to meet together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, it's our hope and prayer that each one of us here would realize that if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, your Spirit lives in us. And what a tremendous gift that is. Thank you, Father. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.